What I want to talk to you about this morning is the idea that I think that there is an identity crisis in the church today. And the identity is the fact that um, there's a lot of different styles of Christianity out there that aren't really reflecting what I would consider a passionate Christianity. And I want to share with you those six kinds of Christianity and those identities. And I'm, I'm hoping that along the way, you'll, if you see one of these in yourself and the way you're living out your Christian life, that you will do something different about it. The first one is what we're going to talk about today, and that's called behavioral Christian, if you're a behavioral Christian. The second one we're going to talk about today as well is the closet Christian. The third one is a cultural Christian. We're going to have fun with that next week, a uh, very difficult one. The compromised Christian will also be next week. So if you, uh, none of you, I'm sure, are cultural Christians or compromised Christians, but you might want to invite your compromising and cultural Christian friends next week. Number uh, five is a nominal Christian, and then six would be a committed Christian, and we're going to look at those at the end of the month. But this morning, I want to put our focus into what I would call a behavioral Christian. In the evangelical world today, I think we have a lot of Christians out there who are busy doing rather than busy being. A behavioral Christian is what I would call a think and do Christian. It's like what we do is when we come to church, we go to a Bible study, and we get this information, this godly information from Scripture, and we process it intellectually, and then what happens is we try to then say, you know what, I, yeah, that's really true. I need to do that. And we jump from what I would call the head to the hands of doing without really having real life transformation from the inside out. And therefore, we've been, we're, we're more about behavioral modification rather than transformation. We'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. A behavioral Christian, secondly, is a believer who fits the expectations of other believers. I mean, let's face it, when you come to church, when you've been involved in the evangelical world, the Christian world, there are certain expectations that we all have of each other, right? We're supposed to be reading our Bibles, we're supposed to be praying, we're supposed to be having, being in a small group, we're supposed to serve, just like Pastor John was saying, and we have these expectations. And if you're doing all those things, somehow we assume then that this person is spiritually mature, when in reality it could be nothing more than a performance. So that's another uh, part of what a behavioral Christian looks like. You see, man looks at the outer appearance and only God looks at the heart. So we're, we're good at that. We're good at putting expectations on other people in terms of what it means to be spiritually mature. Here's the third concept of a behavioral Christian. They're caught up, uh, they're, they're, it's performance-based. And number four, it's behavioral Christian is caught up in, in what I would call rote religion. You know, it's funny because we don't like to be categorized in the Christian community as a organized religion, right? We always talk about relationship, a relationship. It's all about a relationship. But it's really interesting how we in the evangelical world can also be so involved in doing and showing up and getting involved that we're just doing things out of rote, out of habit, out of, habit, out of routine, out of expectation, out of guilt. And all those are extrinsic kinds of motivations that the same, same kind of extrinsic motivation that the Pharisees had when they were walking the planet. So it's going to be very pharisaical. Number five, a behavioral Christian is more about doing than about being. 
Number six, a behavioral Christian is good at the head and the hands, but not at the heart. We're going to look at that more closely in a minute. And seven, a behavioral Christian is externally motivated rather than internally motivated. Now, I want to take you to a passage of scripture that emulates this very concept of what behavioral Christianity looks like. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, it's up there on the screen. And, and John writes to this church at Ephesus and says this, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here's what he says. I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. So this is a church that was very hardworking. They were all about doing. They were all about programs and whatever. They maybe had something going on every night of the week. This was a very active, involved church, very, very busy. I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. And then he says, and I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. So you can see this church has had all of their doctrinal ducks in a row. They, they, they've, they've really made sure that the, the teaching that was going on in the church was very much biblical and not Nicolaitan-oriented or Gnosticism or whatever was the, the, the philosophy of the day. So they're very, very careful about their doctrine. And then it even says this, it says, and then you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. He said, you know, you've really gone through a lot of, a lot of pain and struggles and you've really hung in there. I really appreciate that about you, church. So we've got a church here that looks really healthy from the externals. If we were to walk into that church, we would probably say, wow, this is really a healthy church. But look what it says in verse 4, yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. You've lost your agape for God. Your passion is missing. There's something missing here. Your heart is the piece that's missing. You're very good at your head and you're very good with your hands, but you're really bad at your heart. And I feel like the Christian community today, because of behavioral Christianity, there's a lot of Christians who have a serious heart problem. Now, let's take a look up here at, a, at a, this uh, next slide here. What's fascinating to me is, is what happens with behavioral Christianity. On the left side, you'll notice that we're really good at knowing the Bible in the evangelical world, in the Christian world. We're proud of the fact that we believe in the errancy of Scripture. And so knowledge is very important to us, the data, the facts, the principles, the concepts. But that can all be very linear and very horizontal. In fact, there's a lot of Christians that think the more they know, the more mature they are. That's baloney, right? All that can do is puff you up, according to what Corinthians tells us. So knowledge is a good thing. We need to have the headpiece. But what we have a tendency to do in Western civilization and our culture is to jump from our head right over to our hands. We want to be obedient. We want to be accountable. And we start performing and we behave a certain way. And that can be very linear. What I mean is, is that all can be driven by human expectations and, and guilt and accountability. So there's a missing link. If you go to the next slide... Um, you'll see that the missing link is the heart piece. Can we go to the next slide, Stan? Yeah. And there's a centerpiece here, which I call the heart. Now, I want you to go to another particular passage of Scripture to explain what I mean here in Ephesians chapter 3. And this is fascinating if you've, uh, because we just read about the church at Ephesus that lost its first love, right? 
But you remember Paul prayed a prayer specifically for the church at Ephesus back in Ephesians 3? And what did he pray? Here's what he says. Verse 14. For this reason, he says, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that you out of his glorious riches, that he may be strengthened in you with power through his spirit in your what? In your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp. Now, that word to grasp was an interesting word. We'll get to that in a second. How wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ? And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, surpasses the head, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. So he's saying the missing piece in real transformation of people's lives is the heart piece. It's the centerpiece of what God wants to do in each one of our lives. And he says, I want you to grasp this. I want you to understand this concept. And that word to grasp or to con that concept in the middle means to understand or to come together. He says, I want you to have aha moments. I want you to have a time in your life where you and God, you and God, communicate with one another and this ownership and conviction and this internalization of the truth becomes a part of who you are. And when it becomes a part of who you are, now you can obey out of an internal motivation rather than an external motivation. Does that make sense, folks? You see, the power, problem is, is that we don't... We, we eliminate the heart piece because we're so horizontally driven, we're so linear, and we're so microwave in the Christian community that we just want to be thinking do people. But the heart piece is such a missing piece that we need to look at it more closely, and I want to do that for just a moment. So look at this next slide. A number of years ago, I had a heart attack, and when I started thinking about the heart, I realized that there is a real heart condition in the church today. And when I looked at the physical heart, I realized that there are obviously four basic components or four basic chambers of the heart. And I started to think through that. And I thought, I wonder if, 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 if there's, when we think about real transformation and getting our passion back, if maybe there is a, a com four components that might be a part of this, this thing called transformation or getting our passion back. And as I studied this, I realized that maybe there's four of these four chambers. And so the first one up in the left-hand corner is what I would call honesty. You see, in order for us to really begin to see a real transformation in our lives, we need to be honest with God and honest with ourselves. In Psalm chapter 26, verses 2 and 3, David writes this. He says, test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for your love is ever before me, and I walk continually in your truth. And what, what he's saying here is, listen, I don't want any rationalizations. I don't want any, any denial, because when the truth comes my way, I got to be honest with God and honest with myself. And we got to start there. Now, if we stop there, there's no real transformation, because there's a lot of times, right, in your life where somebody will come alongside you and say, you know, you've got a problem with this. And you say, yep, you're right. Yeah, I'll be honest. Yeah, you're right. I got the problem. Does that mean that you're going to fix it or change? Well, it's a great start. We're admitting and we're being honest with ourselves and honest with God. But that's not where transformation yet takes place. So the second component to this whole idea of what I consider real transformation is, is found in, in Isaiah 66 where it talks about humility. He says, this is the one I esteem who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, I can be honest, but until I really humble myself and be broken and bring my life under surrender to God's authority and God's voice and what he's telling me, I'm really not going to change. 
until I humble myself and deny myself and take up his cross, there's not going to be a following. There's not going to be obedience that's legitimate. And so humility is the second component. The third component is what I feel like is the most neglected, and that's the matter of what I would call contemplation. Joshua writes, don't let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Hey, that's head, right? And then he says, but I want you to meditate on it day and night. That's contemplation. And then he says, that's the heart piece, so that you will be careful what? To do all that is written. See the head, hands, and heart there? And real life transformation doesn't take place until all three of those are in place in our lives. And the problem is contemplation is the one piece that we really miss. Why? Because it takes time. Contemplation, if I had to define it, would be this, slowing down long enough to hear what God has to say. That's not a good, that's not a, a good uh, definition for a lot of us in the way we live our culture, right? We're so stinking busy every day that we don't have time to slow down to hear what God has to say. I'll bet any one of you can give me a testimony today that when real life transformation took place in your life, it was at a retreat or at a lonely place in life where you were by yourself within you and God and there was enough time to hear what God had to say. And when God spoke to you, that's when real transformation took place because that was a time where you and God had a come to Jesus moment and he touched your heart and he changed your life and it was a difference and it came from the inside out, not from the outside in. But contemplation is a missing art, missing piece in our culture because we don't take the time to really sit down and not only speak to the Lord, but to listen to see what he has to say. You look at all the Old Testament prophets and saints and you look at a lot of the New Testament folks that we read about and every one of them, when there was a transformation that took place, it was alone on a road, it was in a desert, it was in a cave, it was on a mountaintop. It was a time and a place where God spoke to them specifically for them at that time and that place and that's when God changed their life. But we want to just take little tidbits. We want to take little sound bites. We just want to go on our merry way. And so we get so busy doing, we forget about being. Well, then the fourth component is intentionality. You see, what happens is we're honest and we're humble, and then we try to be intentional, but we don't let it percolate in our hearts, and we don't really own it, and there's no real conviction. And so we try to do it, but we continually fail, and so there's no real life change. So the fourth component is intentionality. But now, why are we doing it? Why are we intentional? Not because we're trying to prove anything, not because we're trying to perform. It's because God has convicted me, and from the inside out now, I'm motivated and passionate about why God's done it in my life. So these four components need to be necessary, I believe, in order for us to get our passion back. When we neglect our hearts, we're neglecting the very core of our being where God wants to do his best work. And so what's happened to a lot of us is we've gotten caught up in just doing and doing and doing and doing and reward it and we expect it in the church, but are we really being? That's a behavioral Christian. Does that ring a bell with anybody this morning? I won't get too many hearty amens, but it's the truth, isn't it? Now let's just shift gears here for a minute this morning. And shift over to the other kind of Christian that I want to talk about. And it's a completely big gear shift, so hang in there with me. But if you have your Bibles again, turn over to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. If you don't feel like you're a behavioral Christian, maybe you are a closet Christian. And we'll try to define that in just a minute. But it's a real fascinating little tidbit story about a guy named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, you remember contextually, Joseph of Arimathea was the guy who gave his grave so that Jesus could be buried in a proper tomb. 
And so we're going to read about Joseph here in a second. It says in verse 50 of chapter 23 this. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision in action. So we see here that Joseph was very uncomfortable being a part of this pharisaical movement, the pro-council, who was out to conspire against Jesus to get him crucified. And we see here Joseph sort of kind of being in the background and not really totally agreeing with what these Pharisees are deciding. And yet there apparently wasn't enough of a pushback from his perspective. So he was kind of in this closet of Christianity, if you understand. And then it says here, um, he came from the Judean town of Arimathea and was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, he was obviously a disappointed guy because his, what he thought was going to usher in the kingdom of God was Jesus. And now Jesus was dead. So um, it was probably a huge disappointment to him. But at verse 52, he goes to Pilate and he asks for Jesus' body. And then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. So let's look at Joseph a little more closely and see the elements of what it looks like to be sort of a closet Christian. Number one is here, a closet Christian can be a respected member of the inner circle of the church. See, here's a, here's a guy who was a very wealthy man, apparently a very rich man, who was a part of the spiritual elite. He'd probably be a, today an elder in a local church. He'd be, uh, you know, fairly active in the religious community. But when it came to really stepping out and taking a stand, he couldn't do it. So he was a respected member of the inner circle. I mean, he was a guy who apparently was a, a consenter and follower of Christ, okay? Now, here's the second thought. A closet Christian may disagree with the cultural environment they are in, but often keep silent regarding their convictions, so, so you can see here where he didn't consent, but he apparently didn't take enough of initiative to really stop the flow, the ebb and flow of the culture that he was in. Now, this is where it's kind of fascinating because every one of us are living in a certain culture, right? Um, some of you who are in the workplace, you're in perhaps a office kind of environment or you're in a, uh, a, an educational culture or you're in a, uh, one of the things that, that um, I learned when I was working with the police department and still do, that there is a, a, a police culture, there, there's, a, um, there's a, you know, a blue collar culture, there's all, right? I mean, there's certain people that you hang out with every day, there's a culture that sort of exists, there's, a, there's kind of a mutual acceptance of certain values and the way you deal with things and so on and so forth. And, and this was Joseph. He was, he was in this culture of, of, of legalism, Pharisaism, performance things. And so he wanted to kind of fit in. Now, and, uh, he, was, he, he didn't necessarily compromise to the, to the degree that we're going to talk about next week of being a compromised Christian, but, but there was enough of a, of a closet kind of mentality or a secret service sort of a, a mentality or an undercover type of agent feeling that you get from Joseph of Arimathea. And many of us are kind of that way. We want to sort of blend in with our culture. We don't want to rock the boat. We have this fear of maybe any kind of reprisal, so we keep our mouths shut and just kind of do our thing quietly, but nobody really knows why we are the way we are. 
So you have certain cultures that you live in and certain expectations, and it's real easy to fall into that kind of a culture, just like we do in the local church today. There's a culture, right? Just like I described earlier, of these expectations. And so in order to fit in, you know, we try to try to do what everybody else does to, to look good and to, to manufacture some type of performance that everybody appreciates. Here's the third concept of a closet Christian. Closet Christians are motivated more by fear of reprisal than the courage of their convictions. See, Joseph knew that if he really took too strong of a stand, that he would obviously lose his position as a, as a Pharisee. He would be kicked off the council, maybe even ridiculed, perhaps even go to jail. Perhaps another conspiracy would be against him and he would lose his life. And so he was scared to death that if I really come out of the closet here too strongly, I'm going to really get, get pushed back and it's going to really be embarrassing. It's going to be difficult and I just don't know if I can handle it. Have you ever been there in your own life? If I really open up and I really kind of share what's going on in my life, in my heart, you know, maybe, you know, it's, I'm going to get resistance and I'm going to get a lot of these questions that I don't know, understand or I'm not going to be able to respond to. And so rather than take the risk, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and keep my nose clean. I'm just going to kind of walk through life and try not to rock the boat. Can anybody relate? Here's the fourth thing. Closet Christians often come out of the closet only when the threat is at its minimum. You see, here's the deal. Up to this point, before Jesus was crucified and dead, there was a much bigger risk for him to come out of the closet. Because the controversy was still there. The, the element of, of, of threat was still there when Christ was alive. But now that Christ was dead, and he was probably disappointed like many of the apostles at that point, but he was disappointed, and, 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 and now the threat was no longer a big deal. So he kind of says, okay, you know, the least I can do is give Jesus his, you know, the grave so he can get a decent burial. And that's kind of how we are. We, you know, we maybe will take a little peekaboo out of the closet if we think, oh, you know, things are pretty ripe here. It's pretty easy. It's not a big threat. It's not a huge risk. So I'll just leave a track on the table when I leave the, the, the restaurant. No real risk there, you know. I don't have to face them. I don't. You kind of get where I'm coming from here. And then finally, closet Christians might be considered what I would call undercover Christians. Secret Christians. You know, I, when I was studying this for myself, um, you know, I've, I've been there, I've been that behavioral Christian, and it's so easy to fall in that trap. And I've oftentimes been a little more closet Christian, too. And even, even a couple of weeks ago, I, I felt convicted as I was thinking about this message, and I was riding along with an officer. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, usually when I ride with officers, I wait a, at least two or three or four ride-alongs before I really start, you know, poking into their private lives and where they're at spiritually. But for some reason, I felt like I needed to step out this one, one afternoon. And I spent this entire day riding with this one officer. And I, I felt like, you know, I needed to ask him. And so I said, where are you at spiritually? Do you have a faith? Do you, I mean, where are you at religiously? And he said, you know, I don't. I mean, nobody in our family does. He said, my grandma, when she died, she made me read the Bible. But, you know, other than that, we just have no, nothing to do with the church or with God or anything like that. And I said, well, that's too bad. I said, you know, I do what I do. He said, no, why do you do it? And I said, because you guys put your life on the line every day. And I want to make sure that if there is an eternity, that you're going to be in the right place if you were to die in the line of duty. That was at about 730 at midnight. That same guy shot somebody and killed them and almost got himself killed. And I had a chance to share with him the next day, even in the hospital. And it was really a powerful moment for me to remember 
Hey, I got to get out of the closet more often. I got to take those risks. That was a divine appointment. How many divine appointments have we missed because we failed to come out of the closet for fear of reprisal or fear that it's not the right time or the right place? You know, yeah, you hear stories of Bible thumpers and all that kind of stuff, but in reality, you know, we're, we're way beyond, you know, being a Bible thumper for many of us. We, we just need to start maybe being a little more bold and a little take a few more risks and see what God might do. We need to get out of the closet. Amen. It takes a little more courage. You know, we have a whole gay community that's come out of the closet, and, 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 and they're very proud of the fact. And we need to love those gay people. But, you know, when you think about it, they're proud of this lifestyle that they have, have, have uh, wanted to have. And yet we sit sometimes so silently with our own lifestyles of, of really following the Lord Jesus and loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet we hide and we, we, we you know, we, we, we go undercover and we're kind of secretive. And what's wrong with us? And so let me just ask you some questions as I close, and that's this. Are you a behavioral Christian? Have you been caught up in this kind of passionless walking rather than running in your spiritual life? Have you lost your first love? Have, have you lost your passion for the Lord Jesus? You see, shouldn't, shouldn't our, our sharing of our faith come out of a passionate heart? You know what I mean? It shouldn't be an overflow of our love for Jesus and the gospel and the truth and the truth is setting us free and it can set other people free. Shouldn't that be the, the intrinsic motivation in our lives? Where's our passion? I don't want to challenge some of you to think about getting alone with God again and, and having to come to Jesus moment and, and having that contemplative moment where God can speak to you and kind of burn a fire back into your belly so that you can start running again rather than just walking. And then maybe some of you are, you know, you know you've, you've, you've been at work, you've been in the workplace, you've been in this culture of peers that you've been around, whether it's at school or at the workplace or whatever it is, and, and, and you've, you've kind of been this sort of this silent closet Christian, and, and I know that there are limits to that, and it can be, it, but, but maybe it's time to take a risk. Maybe that person that you're working alongside of or that person that you see, Maybe it's going through something and you have no idea, but if you listen to the power of the Holy Spirit and his voice inside of you and say, you know what, I need to say something here and don't miss it because it could be a golden opportunity of a divine appointment that God has for you. I was just reading in Oswald Chambers the other day, my utmost at highest, and he was saying how oftentimes God is a God of surprises. And it's unfortunate that sometimes we like to live from surprise to surprise, right? We want to live from mountaintop to mountaintop. But he said, you know, it's really a matter of it's not a surprise unless God catches you off guard. And, uh, you know, it, it's so fun to to be able to to be passionate about our Lord on a day-to-day -day basis and then have him surprise you because you've taken a risk. You've stepped out and you see this divine appointment. You see how God used you. And there's nothing better in life than to be used by God. Well, I got passionate about that this morning, and so I want to just close with prayer. But come back next week because we're going to talk about a cultural Christian and a compromised Christian. And, and honestly, if you have some friends of people that you know that really maybe need to hear that message, because we have a whole brand of Christianity out there that is just growing by leaps and bounds, and it's called cultural Christianity. 
And it's a scary, scary place for the church to be. And we wonder why people aren't coming to church and they aren't, they're against organized religion and all of that because there's a new kind of hypocrisy on the scene and I call it cultural Christianity. And we're going to talk about that a lot next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to challenge each one of us. Lord, I do believe that there is an identity crisis in the church today. And God, I pray that you would forgive us for those days where we're walking, just walking. I pray, Lord, too, that you would make us much more keenly aware of opportunity in that culture that we eat and breathe and live in on a day-to-day basis. God, I know we need to be all things to all people and kind of blend in to some degree, but God, when there's an opportunity, God, help us to be sensitive enough to your Holy Spirit to say what we need to say. So God, I pray that as we sung a little bit earlier, that we would stand amazed with arms wide open to be available for you, to be passionate about you once again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.